0: The title of my sermon this morning is "When We Real Life Desperation Meets Gospel Belief." Take your Bible and go to John chapter four with me this morning. <clears throat> John chapter four, and we're going to look at verses forty-three to fifty. 4, and I'm going to read the passage in a minute, but I want to play off this video. This really sets this up, it teased this up for me so beautifully, and so I want to ask you the obvious question that this video asked you multiple times, and I really want you to wrestle with this, and this question is, have you ever been desperate? Have you ever been Desperate? completely unnerved and suddenly aware that you must have help. (laughs) I wish I had the time to tell you on a personal level the number of times I have been desperate. I've been desperate when I've cried out for help. I've been desperate as a man. I've been desperate as a father. I've been desperate as a husband. I've wrestled with my doubts. I've wrestled with hearing all that opposition, the world's siren song of don't listen or don't do that. Be strong or turn to this. I've dealt with my own flesh's weaknesses. Have you dealt with those? I have. And the truth is, sometimes even more shockingly for me, is because God called me into ministry, I've had a front row seat to desperation. Just to give you a glimpse, I've held an eight-day-old baby as he died while I held a crying mom. I've had to wake a friend at 3 a.m., go to her house, knock on the door, get her out of bed, walk into her kitchen, sit her down and tell her, your mom was killed in a car accident tonight. I've held the hand of a man I had never met before as he died in intensive care and I was the only one with him as he breathed his last breath. I've been called to the home of friends who have found out that they have just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and have gotten that call many times as a pastor when someone has said, my wife just left me. I lost my job. I just found out I failed out of school. I've twice been called and said this on the other line. Pastor, help me. My son is addicted to drugs and I don't know what to do. I've gotten a call from a dear lady, hopelessly drunk, who begged me to take her to rehab. I've spent two nights in my pastoral ministry in a padded room of the emergency center at two different hospitals, saying with people and praying over them because they had just attempted to take their life desperate people. I've sat in a rating room with my wife Debbie as we lost a child. I've listened as a young lady told a police officer how she had been raped that night. I had to sit parents down in my office and tell them how their son was wrestling with sexuality and sexual identity. Folks, on a personal level and on a professional level, if you call it that, I have had to look in the abyss of my own desperation. I've stared into the pained faces and eyes of countless friends and strangers who've had their lives torn in two when the unexpected finally happens. And here's the thing. None of them, none of them or me ever saw it coming. No one ever got, got up, you know, that commercial that the little note is on the table for the lady at the restaurant and she picks it up and it says, today you'll have a heart attack. That never happens. Desperation never leaves you a note and says, I'll be coming tonight. Life was good and then it wasn't. And all of them and me tried to handle it. Every one of the people I've met thought we could stay out in front of it, thought that if we tried harder or worked harder or thought harder, we could figure it out, we could make it through. And yet, it always surprises me to watch myself and others deal with the reality of I can't. I- I'm desperate. I've seen so many turn to substances. I've seen people turn to fiction. They've hid in movies or television, some now even in video games. I've seen some turn to escapism like sex or working out or staying so busy so they just don't have to deal with it. They don't have to think about it. I've watched desperation blow families and marriages apart. I've seen people curse and swear at God and blame them. I've seen others blame themselves and still others who blame their parents and their siblings, their boss, their job, their past, their friends. Listen, desperation will do one thing. It will show you the one thing consistently, yourself and your limits. It's the one thing we all have in common when it comes to desperation. And in the gospel of John, John the apostle is presenting us with his gospel, namely Jesus Christ. He is in point of fact desperate himself. Even as the writer, he's desperate and driven to get you to see and to believe. His whole gospel is really summed up in the word believe 100 times john writes the word belief in its various forms almost all of them is a call to believe in jesus christ not just as a person but as the messiah as the savior of the lord and and lord of the whole world but you need to understand this morning it's not a call that doesn't come with amazing eternal results because it does Listen again to the end of John, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Listen, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. These are signs that are not written in this book, but these signs are written So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's the results, the consequences. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. I want to write to you the solution to your desperation. Now here's the thing as I look into your faces. I have quoted these two verses almost every time I've preached. But let me ask... Have you heard them yet? Have you heard them yet? Have you taken the time to really process what these two verses as they relate to your life mean? Where are you today on the desperation spectrum? Are you aware of your desperation? Are you blissfully ignorant of how desperate you should be? Are you in denial of your desperation? Would you even know if you're coping with life or living it as Jesus means it to be lived? Now take a moment right now and allow the Holy Spirit of God to speak truth to you about you. Don't think about anybody else. Think about you, ask, say, Spirit of the living God, talk to me about me. Take a moment to search the true reality of your life and let the Word of God teach you and instruct you and confront you and rebuke you and encourage you. Think of who we've come to in this passage. John the Apostle starts in John chapter 1 with 18 verses of, May I introduce you to Jesus. He's God. He's the son of God. He is life and light and the savior. He's God in the flesh and he has come to us and his own rejected him. But to anyone who does receive him, he comes. He gives the power to become the sons and daughters of God. And then he says, behold, my witness, John the Baptist, who witnesses for Jesus is a reflector of Jesus. And then we find out how this plays out in the lives of six men. Right? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Nathanael. In chapter two, we get a glimpse of Jesus' authority as, as God as he cleanses the temple. And we learn that Jesus is the true temple, God who has come to let his people encounter him in relationship. In chapter three, with Nicodemus, Jesus explains what the true birth eat looks like it's not your ethnicity. It's not your cultural background. It's not your social standing. But rather your heart needs to be made right with God. And remember that it's Jesus who is lifted up on Calvary's cross to make that a reality. And then for the last three weeks, we were introduced to the faceless, nameless, half-breed reject. The morally broken woman, Samaritan woman. And she's told that true worship is not on a mountain, but in Jesus Christ. And you know what? All of these have in common, all of these conversations, all of these events, you know what they have in common? Are you ready for this? Response. Response. Jesus is telling you and I, telling us over and over and over again, the proper and only response to Jesus is to trust Him. It's to believe in Him, not for what you can get. Listen, But for who He is, God. When desperation leads to gospel belief, you see, Jesus is the true temple, Jesus is the source of life. He is the one who can bring a dead person to spiritual life again, to be born again. And only Jesus can give us a life that satisfies eternally. So all that as the backdrop, look at our passage. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, that's the two days, remember he spends with the Samaritans. After the woman at the well goes and tells the village and they all come out and they say, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. He spends two days. So after the two days... He departed for Galilee. Now again, John puts in brackets. He wants us to know a little background about this. So in bracket in verse 44, he tells us something about Jesus. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galilee's welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So now you're getting this play. So now you understand why does everybody know where Jesus is? Why is it that this nobleman that we're about to be introduced to will know that Jesus is where he is? Because Jesus has a following. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. Now at Capernaum, which by the way is about 20 miles away, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour. The fever left him. And then the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I feel like in desperation saying, Lord, heal my voice. If you're taking notes, I just want to say point one is a non-committed curiosity. A non-committed curiosity. That's in verses 43 to 45. You see, our passage begins with John giving us the background, the context, the setup to what he's about to tell us about. And so you need to understand, why did this nobleman know Jesus was in Galilee? So John always wants us to put the pieces together. So he tells us this proverb that Jesus had quoted to the disciples and then uncovers that for us as the backdrop for our story. Now you got to remember what John told us back in John chapter 1 verse 11, right? He came unto his own and his own received him not. Remember you get to the end of chapter 2 And you get the setup for this passage when John says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this is the background. These people seem to be enraptured with Jesus. They're all excited. He's the miracle worker. He's the signs and wonder guy. And he's a hometown hero. And the Galileans knew this and word would spread like wildfire. And in chapters three and four, we get three different people from three different backgrounds with three different agendas. One is driven by curiosity, Nicodemus. One is driven by unknown need, wrapped in empty desires, the Samaritan woman. And now we meet a man driven by desperation but the backdrop is always what you see and so 43 to 45 will make sense so after spending two days with the samaritans who saw him as the savior of the world and what did it say they believed his word See how John fits all the pieces together because they said, remember at the end of this, they said the crowd, the town says to the Samaritan woman, we don't believe in him now because of your testimony. We believe in him because we've heard him. We've talked to him. And so John wants us to connect it all together. You see, I don't think this was something, this little proverb was something that Jesus only said once. I think Jesus would say to these disciples many times, listen guys, Don't be impressed with the crowds that are following me in Galilee. Don't be impressed that everybody thinks I'm a hot shot. Because let me tell you, a prophet is not without honor except that in his own country. Watch what happens when we start to proclaim the truth. Watch what happens. Instead, they see Jesus as the sign man. Show us a sign, Jesus. Hey, you're the carpenter's son. What have you got for us now? You see, the only honor Jesus would get from the Galileans was a crowd that would watch the show. That's all they would get. We accept you as long as there's something in it for us. If not, get lost. It was social exploitation at its worst and best. They were committed to seeing the show, they were committed to seeing something for nothing, for using Jesus as their mascot. He was a tool to get them what they wanted on their terms and their time. Oh, they were desperate for what they wanted. And if Jesus was the meal ticket, then so be it. But verse 45 completes what John said all the way back at the end of chapter 2. Jesus has done many things, unexplainable things, things that would get people talking, things that get you noticed, things that draw a crowd. But ultimately, we are seeing unbelief explained. Mark Johnson puts it like this. Jesus is not interested in satisfying crowds who wanted to be entertained. He is interested in sinners who feel their need and are prepared to take Him at His word. So that's the, des- that's the backdrop in 43 to 45. Secondly, let's look at the desperate hope. The desperate hope. In 46 to 49, we meet the nobleman. See, thus far we've met a Jewish rabbi, we've met a Samaritan outcast, and now we meet a nobleman. The context of this is he was likely an officer of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. This Herod, this Herod Antipas is the one who would arrest and kill John the Baptist because John the Baptist would tell him, you're in sin because you're sleeping with your brother's wife. That didn't go over well. This is the same Herod that Jesus would later call the fox. And that wasn't a compliment. Some commentators think that this nobleman might have even been a Gentile. Now we don't have any way to be sure, but if he was, then John the apostle sure did a great job of lighting it all up for us because Jesus comes and he brings the offer of salvation to a Jew that we don't know if he accepted it in Nicodemus, to a Samaritan who we know did accept it, and now to a Gentile. He just tees it right up for us. And so from 43 to f- 55, we know that this man knew what Jesus was. But stop and think about that. Because this guy's the exact opposite of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. You see, this guy's not a religious guy like Nicodemus. He's a wealthy guy and he's powerful. You see, this guy isn't looking for answers. He doesn't have physical needs for himself. It's not like the Samaritan woman. He doesn't need to go out to, wa- to get water for himself. He's got servants to do that. He is a man who demands respect and he gets it. But in so many ways, he's exactly like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Because he's got a problem and he can't solve it. Yet now John the Apostle adds this element. Desperation. Desperation. Charles Spurgeon sums it up so well when he says... All the world cannot satisfy you. Your dearest friends cannot satisfy you. But the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy you to the full. That's what you and I need to see this morning. This is the part of the passage where I think we can all find ourselves. I think every man and woman has been, at some point, desperate. Whether you want to admit it or not, if I could talk to you all privately, you would share your desperation stories. Every one of you have been there. This guy travels between 16 and 20 miles, some 13 and 150 feet uphill. Why? Because look at verse 47. He does this because his son was ill to death. Even as I read it, even in my hoarse voice, can't you feel a father's love? I mean, John just sets this out for us. This is a desperate dad. Can you feel his urgency and his passion? Can you hear the discussions he must have had with his wife? They've been to the doctor and nothing can be done. There's no antibiotics. There's no vaccine. There's no way to heal this. They've heard about and they've seen that this fever comes before and the results have never been good. The family's been called. The servants are there helping. They're standing by eager to help. Maybe they're they're praying. Maybe they're calling out. I wonder if this guy's got a Jewish background. Did he call for a rabbi? Or if he's a Gentile, did did the false gods of the region where they cried out to were sacrifices made? I'm sure this guy called in every favor. I wonder, did he go to Herod himself and ask for help? And say, my son's dying. Help me. And in the midst of his pain, in his panic, in his scrambling, he hears, Jesus is back. He's up in Cana. Could it be, he says to himself, I wonder, I wonder. Did he go to his wife and what was that conversation like? Sweetie, what are we going to do? But somebody told me Jesus is in Cana. Does she say to him, He's in get up there. Or does she say, what's what's he going to do? And if you leave now, what what if her son dies and you're not even here? Was it a tense conversation? Did his wife tell him, you go and I'll stay with her boy? Did his servants or even Herod say it was worth a shot? Maybe you should try it out. Don't you think that he was torn with his own emotions? I'm desperate. I need to go, but I want to be here for my boy. What if my boy dies while I'm traveling? What if Jesus says no? And just like the video we watched, all these doubts and all these fears swirl all around us, and I'm sure it did him, but he is desperate. And so he goes. He must risk it. He must take the chance. How could he live with himself? How could he look his wife in the face? Commentator Kent Hughes puts it like this. There are many things money cannot buy. Money can buy a king-size bed, but it cannot buy sleep. Money can buy a great house, but it cannot buy a home. Money can buy a companion, but it can't buy you a close friend. Money can buy books, but it cannot buy brains. Money can buy a church building, but it cannot buy entrance into heaven. And as our passage suggests... Money cannot buy health and life. You see, wealth cannot buy the life of a loved one. This nobleman was in agony. Nothing could relieve him. Nothing. The end appeared inevitable. My boy is going to die. But he goes and he finds Jesus. Look at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down to heal his son for he was at the point of death. And I wish you could understand what the Greek is telling you here in English because he didn't just ask. He begs. He pleads. He makes a scene. He likely tried to be strong. Maybe even tried to be authoritative. Like I am a nobleman. I work for Herod Antipas. You will listen to me. And in spite of all that desperation, at first glance, Jesus' response in force 48 would seem at first glance cold. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's how Jesus responds. If you have any humanity in you at all, you look at that and go, what? Where's the compassion? Where's the softness of this? This might even sound familiar to you in a little bit of an odd way. Because you know what? Back in Matthew, we find about this dear, desperate lady who goes to Jesus for the healing of a child as well. And Jesus actually looks at her and says, you're a Gentile. I should not feed the dogs. And you remember what she says? Yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs. She, this guy's Desperate. You might think that this is not Jesus being fair or patient or kind, but listen to the words of Martin Luther on this passage. The sin underneath all our sins is that we cannot trust the love and grace of God, of Christ, and must take matters into our own hands. Oh, does that sound familiar? Where you've tried to take matters into your own hands? Has not Jesus been lovingly forward and caringly blunt, graciously honest, meaningfully truthful? Whether it was Nathaniel, who he said, look, a man in whom there is no guile, but before when you were under the tree, he calls him out. Whether it was his mother Mary, who mixed it up, at the, at the turning of the water into wine or Nicodemus or the nameless Samaritan woman. So what is here? Jesus is confronting the heart and mind of this man, all the while addressing the non-committed curiosity of the crowd. Because when he says in verse 48, unless you see signs, that's plural. He's addressing everybody, not just the man, but the entire crowd. And I love this. C.S. Lewis, who was one of my favorite modern writers in his book, Surprised by Joy, writes this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men and his compulsion is our liberation. Wow. In essence, Jesus in verse 48 is asking this man while addressing the crowd, why are you really here? Where does this desperation come from? Why is it that you seem infatuated with me? What are you truly looking for? In some ways, the whole gospel according to John is Jesus saying over and over and over again as he will when he sits by the Sea of Galilee and he'll ask Peter, oh, that you would think less about the wonders and more about me. He wanted this man and this crowd and us to go beyond the signs and the miracles and trust him and he actually says, do you love me? Or... Do you simply love what I can do for you? Or what you can get out of me? Or what you hope you can manipulate me into doing for you? (laughs) But like the woman in Matthew, I love this nobleman. I love this because like the Samaritan woman and that woman in Matthew, they don't give up. And neither does this guy. He's desperate. Look at it in verse 49. He keeps pleading. It's almost as if he ignores Jesus' question. And he says, sir, come down before my child dies. Notice the change of words. In verse 46, my son is ill. That's very formal. In verse 49, my my child is dying. You see, the man isn't put off by Jesus' appraisal. He's truly desperate. And in this statement, could it be that this nobleman is saying what the father in Mark chapter 9, who has the same predicament, he wants a healing, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This desperate man is no longer a nobleman. Now he's a father. He's confronted with his helplessness. His motives are exposed and he doesn't stop. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't quit. He doesn't get angry. He simply cries out for mercy. He says, Sir, my child is going to die. Help me, please. Help me. His request is more of a prayer than a demand. Even by addressing Jesus as Lord or Sir, he humbles himself, for that is likely how he would have been addressed by others. But then look at verse 50, as I bring the train into the station, notice there's a gospel belief offered. There's a desperate hope, but now there's a gospel belief offered because Jesus in verse 50, look at what he says. And Jesus said to him, go, go. Your son will live. Go. Your son will live. Huh. He gives them both an answer and a non-answer. Now the tables are turned. Jesus is the one giving the orders. He says to the nobleman, go. That's the same word used in Matthew 28, 18 when Jesus tells the disciples on, the, on that mountain, go into all the world. He looks at this nobleman and says, go then. Go then. Your son lives. That word, your son lives, it's a term that means immediate action with continuing results. He looks at him and he says, your son is alive and he will live. (laughs) But Jesus still doesn't agree to go with the man. He doesn't offer to go down with him. Now the man has a choice. Look at this. Do I believe Jesus? Can you imagine the tug of war that must have gone on in this man's head? What happens if I go and my son dies? What if Jesus is simply saying this to get rid of me? But look at the end of verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. You see, there's no sign offered, at least not in the immediate. Simply the word of Jesus, nothing more, nothing less. And, and John says that this nobleman believed the word that Jesus spoke and what's more is that this man not only believed that but he rested in it look at verse 51 to 53 because he doesn't start to go back to Capernaum till at least the next day and we know that this was one o'clock in the afternoon with nothing more than the word of Jesus <laughs> see have you ever heard the expression seeing is believing uh, have you ever heard that expression all right Yeah, seeing is believing. Well, for the Bible, believing is seeing. For the Bible, believing is seeing. This reminds me, the greatest, most hilarious story is in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha is trapped up in his home, and the king of Viseria sends his army and says, get him for me. And Elijah is just like making, I don't know, making brownies or something. He's completely chilled, and his servant is freaking out of his mind. And he's bugging Elisha. He's like, How are you not in full on panic mode? Look outside. We're going to die. And so he prays and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And God does a miracle, and his servant looks out and he sees a host of the angelic armies of God surrounding Elisha's home that says, Nobody gets to touch my servant. You see, believing is seeing in the Bible now this guy sees with eyes of faith believing this man must have waited till at least the next day to start his trip back he meets his servants and again you're going to see how loyal these servants were how loving a master this man must have been for they're traveling to him no doubt this man's wife was involved she probably said listen go tell my husband our boy lives desperation is turned to joyous confidence in christ and when he gets there and he sees his servants, he asks the obvious question, isn't it? Hey, my boy lives. My boy lives. Tell me, tell me, wh- when did the fever break? When did it go? Now notice the servant said the fever left him. That expression means not just that it broke and subsided. No, it means the boy went from sick to from from sick unto death to life and life abundant. And one, at one in the afternoon, the boy just got up and said, Okay, I'm good. Now, I don't know about you, but that would freak me out. I've been with sick people, they never go from nigh on to death to, All right, let's, let's go get groceries. It takes them a while to heal. This boy is instantly healed. Now, if you step back and see what John is doing, every time you and I come to the Bible and read it, we need to ask ourselves, what do I see or learn about Jesus here and about God here? Notice something. Here we see the love of a father for a son. Yet, it's a father who can do nothing for his son. And when this man hears that his son was healed exactly when Jesus said what he did, now the man knows this was never about my son. It was always about the son, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus comes from the father as the son, not to die because we can't do anything about it. He dies because that was the plan to heal us. God the Father will crush and bruise Jesus for us, out of love for us. It will give us salvation. Jesus heals us of our sinfulness. He takes the fear of death, the sting of the grave. This is what God is going to do in Isaiah 53. But look at verse 53. And he himself believed and all his household So now the nobleman is not now a saved man and you see once again conversion leads to mission because this guy obviously explains to his wife and to his son not the miracle but rather the sign, Jesus Christ is God. How did that conversation go? How did that reunion go between dad and son? When he's riding back into the courtyard and his son runs to him And he hugs his well-living son. And what does he say? Son, I met Jesus. You live because Jesus just spoke. And you've got to trust him. Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And notice, when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offering, offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see it? God the Father gives us Jesus, his son, to live and die for us who are dead in our sins. Jesus suffers by bearing the holy wrath of God to pay for our sin, amen? Jesus paid it all. And so Jesus offers us the gospel of love himself. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Church, don't miss the gospel implications here that John is giving us. He's showing us ourselves. He's giving us glimpses of ourselves in every walk of life, whether you're religious or you're an outcast, whether you're rich and powerful, whether you're a curious onlooker, whether you're a crowd surfer, it doesn't matter. We all are creating a savior. Every one of us. It could be money, religion, power, authority, fame, even ourselves. But as Goodwin points out, any other savior would have needed salvation himself except him, who is salvation itself. You see, this father had to go back to his son and his son probably said, Dad, thank you. Thank you for loving me. And you know what this father said? Son, I I did nothing. Jesus healed you. Jesus will save you. Paul Tripp explains it so well. Believe is not simply a function of the brain. No, it's an investment of the heart that fundamentally changes the way you live. Cyril, the old church father, observes on this word verse <clears throat> that our Lord here healed two persons at one time by the same words. He brought the nobleman's mind to faith and delivered the body of the young man from disease. That's what he did. So verse 54 is for us gee john tells us that this second sign is an offering of evidence that i offer you why so that you may be like this man that you will bring your desperation to jesus that you'll let jesus tell you what you need to hear not what you want to hear and then you will believe the word of jesus john always will leave you and i with the challenge what do you believe who do you believe And so, as I conclude this morning, to believe or not to believe, that really is the question. From Genesis to Revelation, unbelief is the sin that damns us to hell and separation from God. So, here's my question Are you desperate for Jesus? Are you desperate? Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible or are you believing in a Jesus of your own creating? John Bunyan the writer of Pilgrim's Progress says I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus and if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand I would have sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him for I knew him to be my last hope that's profound See, it's not that you have faith. It's the object of your faith that's so important. It's the motivation of your so-called faith. Do you want to believe? Or are you only willing to believe in a God who does what you want, when you want, how you want? Secondly, have you admitted your desperate need and brought it to Jesus? Have you admitted your need and brought it to Jesus? Now, be honest about that. Everyone in here is struggling. Every one of you. You're struggling with unbelief. Whether it's a lack of exposure to Jesus, whether it's a lack of information, whether it's a lack of evidence. But if you're exposed to Jesus and you sit here week after week and get the truth of Jesus and you see Jesus' impact all around you, you can come to an unbelief of hard-heartedness. Never forget what John is trying to do in John 20, 30 to 31. How do you see yourself? Are you religious? Are you curiously looking for answers? Are you fighting nagging doubts? Do you face and feel those faceless, nameless, and on the fringes, those doubts, living life as it fights against you? Or are you here this morning and you're a man and woman of means? Life is good for you. You've got a good education, you got a good job, you got money in the bank, your family, the house is paid for, you got a decent marriage, you're a good neighbor, your staff like you. likes you, your boss loves you, you and even trusts you. Life is good. Things are moving just as you had planned them. You don't call yourself religious, but you are spiritual. You're striving to balance work and marriage and family. You know, politics and your opinions are good ones. People like you and even listen to you, and then bam, the world comes crashing down all around you and you get a first-hand look of how fleeting all of what you work for is. And before you know it, you're desperate. Have you come to Jesus who declares I am and have you responded with yes, you are. Oh, Calvary and church and v- visitor and friend, believe in worship and submit your life to God. Who he is, he is worthy Don't turn to Jesus for His wonders, but rather wonder in Jesus. As Edward Klink puts it, a God who is worthy of worship even when there is no sign and even when our request goes unanswered, even still He is to us our God, the true sign and wonder. Don't miss that. And finally, true gospel belief is always and only in Jesus. Friends, don't miss this. Jesus gives a word and the nobleman believes the word. So here's my question. How how much do you are you trusting in and believing in the word of God? I mean that. Not as a cliche. How often did you read God's word this week? How often do you plan to read it in the week ahead of you? Francis Schaeffer, who wrote this back in the 70s, said this, as this is Reformation Sunday, as we celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, he says evangelical Christians need to notice that the Reformation said Scripture alone and not the revelation of God in Christ alone. If you do not have the view of the Scriptures that the Reformers had, you really have no content in the word Christ And this is the modern drift in theology. Modern theology uses the word without content because Christ is cut away from the scriptures. The Reformation followed the teaching of Christ himself in linking the revelation Christ gave of God to the revelation of the richer written scriptures. So church, read God's word daily more. When you're cut, bleed scripture. What did Paul say in Romans 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The nobleman's faith was strong enough that his heart was at peace. Can that be said of us? Or are we so constantly busy that that suggests we are not resting on the Lord with the peaceful faith that he deserves? Are you exercising your faith in Christ? I love this. I read this Puritan who said, every time a godly man reads the scriptures... And there meets with a promise. He ought to lay his hand on it and say, This is part of my inheritance. It is mine, and I am to live upon it. The story is told of an old man whose Bible was marked on page after page with these initials TNT. When asked about it, he replied, and this is what it meant. He said, TNT says, tried and true. Whenever you see these letters, it means that I tried it and I found it to be true. You got to exercise your faith to know the promises in God's word. Try them by faith and find that they are true. Are you desperate enough to come to the one true God? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, there are some sermons that I preach and I wonder who you're going to speak to. And then there are sermons like this one where I feel like nobody else was in the room but me and I spoke to myself. Father God, with fear and trepidation, I ask of you, I beg of you, to make me desperate for you. Lord, I don't want to live for myself. Lord, I don't want this church to live under a veil of religiosity only to miss the meaning of what it truly looks like to follow you. So Lord, for every man and woman, young person and older alike, would they grab a hold of what it means to be desperate for you and to know your offer of gospel faith? Because you are indeed the one true God. Speak, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people say it.